We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I think it goes back to like kind of our primal roots, of course, you know, like meat and fire. That's pretty as basic as it gets. Uh, it's about as complicated as I get, too. For me, steak is kind of like a nostalgia, as is barbecue um, in Texas. But yeah, I think we're just kind of used to it. And it's, it's kind of a comfort food for everybody. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, Matt's talking to BBQ superstar Aaron Franklin, whose latest book is Franklin's Steak. Later on, you'll hear Matt hosting a conversation in Los Angeles about coffee with, who did you talk to? This is, anyone who uh, drinks coffee out there knows about coffee, epic lineup. Jeff Watts, vice president of coffee at Intelligentsia Coffee. Kyle Glanville, co-founder of Goganum Tiger. Christopher Nicely, Abel Alameda, co-owner and head barista at Manati's. And Brown Serna, an educator at Counterculture Coffee. What a lineup that was. Incredible. But let's talk about steak for a second. Yeah, Aaron Franklin, man, he's famous in Austin for barbecue, but really his latest book tackles steak. How is this book gonna change my cooking at home steak game? He really he takes a second look at a lot of these conventions and this conventional wisdom. Um, one thing he he really talks about are those really like 1980s Applebee's commercial grill marks that you see on steaks. It's like the steak emoji. Anna, shocker, you don't want those grill marks on your steak. So you're telling me that right now in 2019, grill marks are bad. Yes, Anna, you want crust all over your steak. You don't want it in specific grill mark area. It was quite the conversation with a modern meat master. I have a lot to learn. Here's Matt with Aaron Franklin. Aaron Franklin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Um, the book was originally going to be called Steak AF. Is that true or false? Oh, I really wanted to call it The Steaks Are High. Um, <laughs> but then we didn't know if that was true or not. De La Soul <laughs> record? Well, you know. Reference, I'm, maybe? You, no, no, not a De La Soul reference, okay. unfortunately. Darn. Uh, darn. But still good. I should have known that. I should have checked the email. <laughs> So, but it ended up being uh, Franklin Steak, right? Yep. Is that what it's called? Franklin Steak, right? Yeah, we also wanted to call it Steak Out, but thought that was probably taken. Yeah. There but... were a lot of terrible ideas. But anywho, we, we finally landed on Franklin Steak. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really cool book. It's a it's kind of a continuation um, from the barbecue book, which is a massive bestseller, but also just such a cult favorite. I, I just want to backtrack to that right now. Are you seeing still a lot of people sending you Instagram to them building their barbecue sets? Oh, for sure. Um yeah, when Jordan and I did the first book, you know, really what we wanted to do was like, well, you know, doesn't really need recipes, I need this. Uh, but we really wanted it to be like one of those books that's just always on the kitchen counter, yeah. you know, that's torn up, it's got grease stains all over it, barbecue sauce splatters on it. Um, and I think it's actually turned into that, uh, which is really, really cool because we still hear yeah. so much feedback from it. And, you know, people, you know, Instagramming pictures or like, check out my first brisket, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. That's so, so cool. And you respond cool. and you inter interact with them. I see that a lot. So that's nice. Uh, tell me why then... We're moving on to steak. Why, is that a natural progression from barbecue for you? Well, for me it was because I kind of started with, you know, really long cooks and, yeah. you know, expensive, not steaks, not expensive, but like really like big pieces of meat and long cooks and losing sleep and all this stuff. <laughs> so it seemed like a natural progression for us to do something a little bit, you know, easier at the end of working on the, on the barbecue book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we kind of get done with that and we cooking ribs and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, oh, let's just go grill steak. Right. It was so took so much less time. Uh, but we found ourselves getting really passionate about steak. Completely. And uh, it, it did seem like a natural progression, probably backwards for most people. Yeah, I would think so. But you do talk about dry aging, which is actually uh, probably longer than barbecue. Well, is longer. Well, it definitely it, takes longer. Several <laughs> months longer. But um, I want to know just like, is it is, what's it about beef that really excites you? We're, we're, you're a beef guy. Well, I did grow up in Texas. So hey. I guess I've got that going for you got me. got that. Um, as State did Jordan. Pride. Um, 
Yeah, it's kind of to my genetics. Um, I don't know. I mean, beef is awesome. I mean, I, I really yeah. that's always been kind of my favorite, and uh, I think it's it's interesting enough because there's just so many different muscles, and not that I'm a butcher or anything, but. Mm-hmm. You know, like a brisket is tricky because it's got mm-hmm. two muscles and you've got all these different steak cuts and they all cook different. I think, you know, texturally, it's it's really interesting because the different fats melted different in different yeah. ways and stuff. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of like a really interesting type of food. I think. And we have amazing beef in America. Like, we do. Wave, I'm going to wave the flag because honestly, we really having we both have traveled throughout the world and we just have for, for, for the price. We have great beef. Right. I mean. Yes and no. Oh, I love it. Um, I think, but yeah, I mean, we're we're lucky in this country to have some pretty pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's really great beef all over the world. I mean, you go yeah. to, you know, all over Europe. I mean, these cows are eating, you know, mm-hmm. field peas and grazing on the sides of mountains and getting the sun on only the left sides of their bodies. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff yeah. going on. So, you know, kind of like barbecue has a regionality. I mean, yes. beef really does too. Yeah. Um, and we're lucky here in this country to have a lot of that stuff. We've got some great land out there. Yeah. Good point. Um, point taken. I think definitely if you go to Japan, of course, the beef there is probably the most exquisite in the world. Yeah, but totally different. I mean, it yeah, tastes completely sure. different, even though it's got, you know, higher fat content. Like the flavors are, are totally different, too. Yeah. You offer it's very prescriptive. You offer a lot of um, ways to cook steak uh, and you myth bust quite a bit. So I want to we can talk about I want to give away the whole book, but I just want to like in general um, I wanted to hear a couple, um, how are we cooking steaks wrong, Aaron Frank? Well, I don't know that we are, anyone is, I mean, you know, I think aside from like dipping in a, you know, pot of boiling water and overcooking it, <laughs> like that's pretty wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's really a wrong way. I yeah. think there's maybe just more right ways. Um, it's kind of how I would look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, I never be like, ah, you're doing that wrong. It's terrible. Ah. Um, but I think it's neat to, you know, and one thing we tried to do with the book was, and we didn't really go into this book with a hard outline. It's like, well, this is a myth that we need to disprove or prove or whatever. We just kind of let the steak tell us where to go with it. Um, And we learned a lot, and our path changed considerably throughout cooking all this stuff. I mean, Jordan and I probably cooked over 100 uh, New York strips and developed all kinds of like, well, well, this happened. I didn't see that happening. Um, But we kind of found more right ways to do it, I guess. And some of those would be, for example... um, you know, like salting a steak 30 hours in advance, 24 hours yeah. in advance, 48 hours, 72 hours. I mean, we did all kinds of yeah. experiments and uh, quickly found that that was, you know, kind of 30-hour mark-ish um, of pre-salt at 1.58% by weight was like, I thought, like the perfect way to do a steak and air dry it in the fridge. Um, didn't see that coming. It just kind of happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't think there's like a wrong way. I mean, sometimes you just got to pull a steak out of the fridge and throw it in a skillet and cook it because you need dinner. But yeah, and if you've, you've got the time, of course. there are some cool mm-hmm. cool things you can do. And speaking of time, it struck me um, about resting the steak. You are People not... People seem to be really talking about that a lot. That's interesting. I think, and you write really beautifully about how there are no rules about resting. You may have in your family a history of resting. Your grandfather rested the steak for 30 minutes with great ceremony. <laughs> and you shouldn't say, hey, Grandpa, you were fucking wrong, because that's like just kind of rude. Well, it's rude. It's rude. Don't it's, tell old Gramps he's wrong. You both said rude. It's yeah. rude. So, but, but still, you came upon this conclusion that resting is maybe not... Well, needed. it is still resting, Um you know, I mean, you have to think about the size piece of meat. Like, obviously, like, a brisket is yeah. huge. I know we're talking about the steak book, yeah, but sure. it's for good contrast. Um, you know, like, a brisket might go on at 15 pounds, 10 pounds. I mean, that's a giant piece of meat, um, and it cooks a long time. It's got a lot of momentum. So, yeah. obviously, the resting period might be two, three hours for that before it kind of comes up to temp and then starts to drop. Um, but you don't have to rest a little steak that long. I mean, if it's like a little flank steak or a filet or, or a bevet or something like that, it can totally rest while it's on the plate on the way to the table. It's just not that big of a piece of meat. So mm-hmm. I think resting, everything should rest for a little bit, but it should kind of coincide yeah. with the size and the momentum that it's got. And also, I mean, if you're cooking a piece of like a, you know, maybe a, a strip or a ribeye or something like super rare doesn't have much temperature going on anyway you don't need to rest it you don't need long. to and that's a probably a great way to cook a ribeye yeah let's take and i meat. think you know like for resting if you can touch it and you can cut it it's ready to eat yes that's totally gonna that be. is the takeaway shouldn't be too precious exactly and then on the flip side on the, the other side is just the tempering or bringing to temperature yeah totally that's a little bit of uh, a thing that you've come up with yeah, and that's pretty normal. Um, so tell us the tell us the actual prescription. Well, I guess kind of the 
if you think about it, that's the way I think of barbecue too. But if you kind of like, you don't necessarily want to put an ice cold piece of meat in a rate on a raging hot grill and you do not necessarily want to slice up a raging hot steak, you know, right on a ice cold plate. I mean, just kind of like let things ease into where they're going to be. So, um, you know, it, on steak, it kind of goes, if you're thinking about the surface of the piece of meat and how you want the inside cooked, it's like, all right, so I want the outside to be really crusty. want the inside to be super rare. Obviously, maybe it should be pretty cold when you put it on. So you might just pull it right out of the refrigerator. But if it's a huge piece of meat, like a giant tomahawk mm-hmm. or something like that, you've got it's going to take a long time to get the center where you want it cooked right. But you don't want to get the outside too crusty or you don't want to burn it. You probably want to temper it. And mm-hmm. that means let it sit on the counter, not for long enough where it's going to make anybody sick or go mm-hmm. bad or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe like 30 minutes, maybe an hour at 60 degrees. I mean, that thing's 32 degrees coming out of the refrigerator. Yeah. It's going to take a while to kind of warm up to room temperature. So that stuff makes a huge difference. But most of the steaks we're cooking, we're not cooking these giant cuts. We're cutting. Well, we are down in Texas. Yeah, down in Texas, yeah. Everything's yes. bigger. <laughs> but I think it, in general, pulling it out of the fridge and cooking it is not like that bad of a... It's not terrible. Um, it can be done, but it makes you mm-hmm. kind of want to think about how hot should my skillet be if, if it's a strip yeah. that's two inches thick. You might want to start off at a slower temperature so you give the meat time to kind of yeah. just guide it in that direction. We, we've talked for 15, 10 minutes about cooking steak. I could and probably you, talk all day. could probably talk all day. But, like, why do we as a culture just love talking about the cooking of steak? It's, it's a, We're not talking about, like, endive in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it goes back to like kind of our primal roots, of course, yeah. you know, like meat and fire. Uh, it's sure. pretty as basic as it gets. Uh, it's about as complicated as I get, too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think everybody kind of grew up, you know, in this country, grew up in the Midwest, you're probably eating steaks and kind of wherever you grew up. I think for me, steak is kind of like a nostalgia, as is barbecue um, in Texas. But yeah, I think we're just kind of used to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a comfort food for everybody. Uh, you compare sous vide steak cookery to the Japanese bidet style toilet. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Really got me to pickle on this one. Um, yeah, I think so. I wouldn't quite go that far, maybe, but um, <laughs> the book does. Jeez, it's... I, th- I, th- I think he slipped that in after we talked about it. Um, but it has a point, and I'm no, thinking. it does. So, kind of the thing, I think a lot of people get crazy on sous vide, like, "Oh, it's the best way to cook a steak," but it doesn't really impart any flavor. You're cooking something in a plastic bag, um, and texturally, that's really cool. But it's hard to get flavor. You know, like you get a grill, or you've got Maillard reaction in a hot skillet, or you've got butter um, that you can kind of poilé on there, or whatever. Um, you know, you're imparting flavor in this piece of meat. You're kind of coaxing certain things out of it. You got salt and all the stuff. But in a bag, it's just you've got a really perfectly cooked piece of meat. Yeah. But I don't know that you're ever going to get like that rosemary butter no. note out of that after you sear it on a grill. Yeah, that um, quick, quick, quick sear. Yeah, yeah, and I also, I mean, cooking wise, you know, and sous vide is great. And if if you're cooking for a lot of people, obviously that's a, a great way to feed a lot of people a massive amount of mm-hmm. food. Um, but I kind of, on a personal level, I kind of like the gradient. I don't like it like hard sear. And then two inches or an inch and a half or whatever of perfectly cooked medium. Like I like the the textural differences in there. Mm-hmm. I like kind of gradient where it's like good crust, then it's a little overcooked, and then it gets kind of rare. Yeah. Um, I mean, I texture really is such cool. a big part of it's of a huge food. part. It's like the yeah. biggest part of steaks, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that's kind of what you lose. I think you kind of lose the craft a little bit in sous vide. Uh, but another cool thing that you can do along the same lines is kind of what some people call a reverse sear, um, which is what you would do with a sous vide thing anyway. Um, but you can kind of bring something up real slow in an oven. You could kind of bring it up real slow on a grill, get some smokiness, get some mm-hmm. charcoal kind of flavors, um, let it rest, and then sear it off when your friends show up. Um, same principle, just kind of different execution. Yeah, it's slow cookery, then that but final there's sear. a time and a place for everything. For sure. And I like also you talk about grill marks, like those iconic lines. Probably there was an emoji <laughs> for a steak. They would put the grill oh, I'm marks. Sure there is. But you're talking about grill marks not really being indicative of great steak. Not necessarily. I uh, I secretly... Every time I grill a steak, I try to make like those super like '80s looking grill marks. You know, like a Nighthawk TV dinner, yeah. uh, like perfect crosshatch, yeah. and I do it, and then I just start flipping the steak a bunch and totally cover them up because it really yeah. just doesn't matter that much. Um, and I think you can cook a much better steak by flipping back and forth a bunch of times as mm-hmm. opposed to that one 
side, it overcooks a little bit, and then you flip it. It's like just a little bit, little bit, little bit, kind of inch in. Um, but if you're cooking like that, it's really hard to get really great grill marks, although they are pretty. They are pretty. They're great for the gram. But you do kind of mention like the whole top layer should be a grill mark, right? I mean, Kind of. Yeah. It's just, that's the great texture that's, you're looking for. Yeah. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about your barbecue business because it still is kind of going strong, right? You guys are selling Yeah, so people cute. definitely showed up. It's cool. What's the status of the cutting the line policy at Franklin these days? Well, there isn't one. Oh. Um, da, da, da. You can't cut the line. No, no, it is definitely not a thing. That's what I thought. I um, I love it. You I know, love that about you. Everybody kind of, I got to do a show up. It's not that hard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you might have to wait for a little bit, but it's fun. I think, um, you know, if you're really trying that hard to skip the line, maybe you're kind of missing out on just kind of the big picture of it. And it's not nice for other people. Just No, it's not nice. It's equal. And you get to have fun in that line, throw some footballs around, maybe have some brown spirits. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love that about your Absolutely. restaurant. Absolutely. What are you serving right now at your at your restaurant? Exactly the same thing we've always served. Cool. Uh, just, just five meats, three sides, pies. That's it. Yeah. You're happy with it? You like it? You like what you're doing? Oh, it's great. Um, I think the steak was a bit of an extension on that because we do the same thing every day at Franklin Barbecue. It's like... Try to make the best brisket we can, but it's yeah. just one piece of meat um, and ribs and turkeys and all this stuff. Um, and steak, I think people are like, oh, what's what's next? What's next? It's like, well, I learned how to cook steak, and <laughs> I guess we wrote about it. Yeah, and it's a natural progression. I wanted to get back to steak and talk about marbling because I think there is some truth and false about marbling and the importance of marbling. Is it important, Aaron Franklin? Is yeah, marbling yeah, important? it's definitely important. Um, so there are different types of fats, and I think the kind of a lot of I've heard. People think it's like, oh, fat makes everything good. Fat, 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 need more fat. Um, but the reality is there are different types of fat. I mean, there's some kind of pretty gross fat out there that I don't want to eat. No. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't like a heavily marbled steak. Um, so I think it depends on what kind of texture you want out of a piece of meat. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that goes into like a filet versus, you know, like a ribeye. Yeah. And everybody kind of is like, oh, ribeye's king, ribeye's king. It's got so much fat. Um, but texturally, I kind of like a filet. And even though it doesn't have a lot of natural fat in there, I think there's a way to kind of replace that sort of get more flavor. Um, But yeah, a highly grated piece of meat is always best. Beautiful. And Um, I like that you write about the rise of the ribeye and how the filet has kind of been put put Oh, everybody makes fun of the filet. Yeah. It's a nice little piece of meat, though. It's delicious. It's it's, It's it's, like butter. Exactly, like butter. I mean, you want to have that really tender piece of steak sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you can have a ribeye. And a filet on the same plate and just kind of go back and forth. That's dope. Yeah. I think you get texture and you get the butter. You get like multiple textures, what I'm trying to say, with, with both yeah, those cuts. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it is nice to have a prime or a better grated uh, filet, though. Have you tinkered with uh, like dairy cows, like Holsteins? Yeah, them? totally. Talk about that because I think there's a lot of uh, – t- you know, talk about, um, you know, it's it's humane, it's a use of meat that oh, maybe we were I think using. those are so, some of the best steaks I've had have been from old, like, 10-plus-year-old dairy cows. Um, and they don't have much fat. That's kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, but I still think, so if you're looking at an animal that's, you know, heavily marbled and stuff, and it was a fast growth, it takes a lot of time to develop these flavors mm-hmm. in an animal. And, um you know, a dairy cow is a perfect thing, even though they're lean, but they've been around for a long time. So they've developed a lot of a lot of cool flavors in mm-hmm. there and their muscles are developed and they have better intermuscular fat versus subcutaneous fat and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, we sh- there's no reason to not be utilizing those animals. Yeah. Um, and then also, I mean, hamburgers, too. I've, I've heard there's like dairy hamburgers out there. Oh, yeah. 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 It's cool. Um, I wanted to also talk about your travels. Like you, you travel a bit and you. Eh, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Um, Japan? Have you been to Japan? No, I haven't. I'm kind of scared to go. I think it might ruin me forever. Let's talk about that. Why? Um, well, because you love Japan. I know that. I do, and all signs point to that being like just like the ultimate. Like, oh my god, the coffee, ah, the beef, ah, everything, <laughs> and obviously the sushi, and and just the way the attention to detail that they have over there culturally, and just you know, one guy making rice for yeah. thirty years to make the perfect grain of rice. I mean, that is insane. I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe I should wait and go there after. But isn't that what after you, we retire, so we could really spend some time there? But isn't that kind of what you've done with with Franklin Barbecue? You really have spent unintentionally. The hour. Maybe. Sure, sure. I'm not intentionally, uh, of course, but, but like, that's kind of where my brain goes. Yeah. Like, that is so awesome. Like this one craft that is just so finely honed. 
Um, yeah, I should I should not go to Japan for a while. It just, for sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've had offers to extend Franklin to Japan. Is that yeah a, a little bit? Um, eh, it would never happen. Yeah, There's no way. I feel like we don't have the right wood. Really. That's that's what's holding you back, the wood source? Well, we don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Ah, there you go. That's <laughs> There's what, that, too. There's that, too. We already work way too hard. Um, You write about Extabari from in, from northern Spain. Yeah. Have you I, been there? I have not eaten there, but Jordan has oh, okay. uh, a few times. And, uh, man, it is so, so high on my list. Um, I think we're going to try to go there next year to go eat some dinner. Um, man, that guy seems so awesome. And that's kind of... So awesome. That meal, the first time that Jordan went there, I think was kind of the beginning of the uh, steak book. Um, he just had like a huge aha moment. And, you know, that's going to like, man, I just had the greatest steak in my life. Oh, my God. Like he was so inspired by that. I feel like I've never been there either. And I, I've read about it. And it's kind of like the place I want to go next. It just seems like yeah, he's it's definitely the place I want to go next. That's amazing. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast um, if there was a dream cookbook project um, in the works in your brain, no no deadlines, you know, no restrictions. Hmm. What would that be for you? Oh my gosh, I've never thought about it. Hmm. Probably a picture, a pop up book of crispy tacos. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it has a workshop. I'm just it. making this up on the fly. Of but, course, <laughs> that's the beauty of it. Yeah, you know, just look at that all day. And... Oh my gosh, no recipes. Just the is the crispy tacos of Texas. Of anywhere. Yeah. I don't discriminate. If it's a taco and it's crispy, I'll eat it. Aaron Franklin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Here's Matt talking coffee with the folks from Intelligentsia, Go Get em Tiger, Counterculture Coffee, and Minotti's. Thank you for coming in. Um, wanted to start... Um, by just um, asking each of you, and I'll start with you nicely. Give me one word for espresso. What comes to mind? One word. Life. Down the go. <laughs> Life. I hate this question. Uh, <laughs> what's the point? But it, uh, complicated? Yeah. <laughs> complicated. I would say underrated. Underrated. Interesting. Clap in the audience. And Jeff, one word for espresso. I'm going to say R. Kelly. Oh, man. I heard a boo, too, in the audience. That gives it a bad connotation, Wow. Jeff. I think he's trying to give it a bad connotation. Okay, so Jeff hates espresso. That's a fact. I don't, I don't That's the context. Espresso. Speaking to the microphone, Jeff, so we can pick oh, it up. Yeah, so, Jeff, I'm going to go to for, you. Though. For the record, I do not hate espresso. You okay. pretty, However... You, Je- but Jeff, you're you're the you're a he's financially vested in espresso, so he cannot say he hates espresso. Okay, so Jeff is for the background. Jeff is a co-founder of Intel- Intelligentsia, which sells a shitload of espresso. We do, but we do. We went to Africa together. I wrote about it in the magazine. You told me we were walking through um, a coffee farm in southern Ethiopia. You you made this this statement. I do not like espresso. Explain. See. <laughs> I set it up that way. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, espresso can be very good, can be very tasty. Uh, and it's done a lot of great things in this world for this industry. Uh, and it's responsible, I think, for uh, a lot of the accomplishments that we've made as an industry. It's also responsible for some of the worst um, developments in our industry. And I see it as a tremendous obstacle to furthering the cause of quality, especially as it relates to uh, the work of coffee farmers. You said you're tying it directly to coffee farmers. Yes. That's nicely respond. You own um, two cafes in Los Angeles, and you sell a lot of espresso. Yeah, I think he's talking about, you know, how good we can actually make sure it's a fair representation of the farmer's work, you know, how good we end up serving it is ultimately that last you know, impression of what that coffee is supposed to be. So for me, I'm like, well, I just make sure, you know, I don't mess up his job, you know, and, yeah. and mess up his great work of making sure the green coffee is good, you know, so. Roman? Well, I just feel it's very underrated because, like Jeff said, it can be very, very bad when it is bad. But given the cultural context, so it is a very, it's like what um, Kyle said earlier, it's like whiskey, it's it's an acquired taste. So if you don't grow up like a European drinking espressos all the time, 
then it's going to it's going to taste very strong. It's going to taste yeah. very bitter. But when you get that god shot, it's it's amazing. Kyle, what is a god shot? We were talking about it. It's like one out of twenty, right? I mean, one out of twenty in like the best coffee bar in the world <laughs> so, would be like an incredible god shot. Which that's a term I haven't heard for like ten years. I appreciate. Sure. Uh, that shot's awesome. I love it. Uh, but it, it's it is uh, espresso has a ton of like n- inherent defects and problems. You are squeezing water through a wafer of coffee at hundreds of pounds of pressure, and it's meant to fail, um, and it's meant to be bad. Uh, which wow. is why we have uh, kind of worked around it. Like we kind of like got stuck with espresso, and then we had to make it not suck. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like the filter coffee stuff and the stuff that Jeff is has really pioneered as a green coffee buyer, uh, which is like more focused on the provenance of the coffee, on the specific uh, flavors of you know this uh, Ethiopian coffee or uh, this Ecuadorian coffee or this uh, Peruvian coffee, and then the farms within that. Um, espresso is just a way to brew coffee. It does impose a lot of uh, specific... Uh, nuance to it, yeah. but okay. To answer your question, a god shot is uh, sweetness is king. Yeah, uh, and if you get like just amplified, resonant, beautiful sweetness, that's like the surfboard yeah. and all the beautiful other f- uh, characters. Whether it's like the floral or you know yeah. vanilla or chocolate, they ride the surfboard of of sweetness. Who of- thinks about sweetness? Show of hands for their coffee. Just be honest. So we've got about half in the audience. When I, you know, I don't think about sweetness. Often. For me, it's honestly it's a feeling. You know, okay. I, I, I said this earlier. I'm like, you know, coffee or a, shot, or a shot of espresso that I enjoy most is something that I feel as opposed to something that I'm going to be having a session with that I'm going to be drinking for an extended amount of time. That shot of espresso represents two to three sips to start my day where I'm like, man, I need that to work. I need to feel it and I need to get on my business, you know, so. I want to go to you nicely. I want to find. I want to hear you speak with customers every single day at your cafes. You're working the bar often. What do you wish more coffee drinkers knew about coffee? I'm going to go down the line because I know there's going to be different opinions. There's where I would I would use the word complicated. Uh, where I would I would hope that the coffee drinkers that I meet, and then then the idea of me is like I think you you qualified it in the in the email like what's a typical coffee drinker. And I was like, well, what's typical? I mean, how my grandma had it was different than maybe how his grandma had it, you know? And that, I think, is relatable enough to understand that we've all come from cultures and backgrounds that appreciate it a lot differently. And so um, typical or a coffee drinker, that, that was tough for me to wrap my head around. And especially on where we are in Venice, I mean, we literally see everything, bums to billionaires. And, I mean, a lot of those bums are, you know, just disguised as billionaires. We'll be billionaires in one day. And, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I wrote the joke a lot differently. Actually, my man Derek heard me say it and deliver it, it a lot differently. You know, but nonetheless, you, you feel what I'm saying. You're crediting your writer. I, I love got it. to. I got Appreciate to. I mean, that. I'm here as a result of a lot of these people sitting here. So I'm, yeah. yeah, and in this room. So um, yeah. Let's go down, uh, Kyle. Just tell me what what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think specifically like the people who go to Intelligentsia or uh, go get them Tiger or Minati's or get drink counterculture coffee. Uh, just the uh, astounding improbability of the thing that you're about to enjoy. Uh, if you live in LA and you patronize one of these shops, you are drinking the top 1% of the coffee in the world. And the reason that it is that is because uh, from uh, seed, a farmer made a choice to dedicate their life's work to a way of doing things which is five, ten times as hard as doing it the commodity way. And then what's commodity? Let's define that for our audience. Bulk coffee sold on an open market and the markets fluctuate based on supply and demand. Okay. There's no flavor distinction. It's all below what, you know, you like well below what, what we would sell. It's not it's not valued based on how it tastes. Yeah. More or less. Exactly. Yeah, so, like, I think, you know, and then all the way, and, like, you know, I opened Intelligentsia in Silver Lake in 2007, and, you know, we kind of, like, spawned a lot of, like, jokes about baristas, like, waxing their mustaches and telling you all about the farm and all this, and it's, like, easy to make fun of, right? Because it's, like, I don't need all that shit, just give me my fucking coffee. I, like, get it. I totally get it. But the reason that that is essential to storytelling has become such a feature is because it is 
like you have to have every person in the chain of custody operating at fucking Michael Jordan level greatness to deliver the coffee that like we all get for four dollars. Well, we were going to get into pr- that is a, an applause from the audience, and we can get to the price because we all can agree that coffee is not expensive enough, and we don't pay enough for coffee. Um, Brahman, a little bit more about what you think your end user needs to maybe know a little bit more about coffee that you wish. I'm going to hearken back to what Nicely said, that it is complicated. Most people that I've educated, not only here in L.A., but I came from, I recently came from living in Southeast Asia for the past three years. So this concept of specialty coffee has spread very globally. And a lot more people, particularly in that part of the world, where it is an origin, there are lots of origin countries around that area, Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia, and they're willing to pay the price, but that, that market there is also very young. Um, it's as young as the L.A. market, about five, six years to be... To twelve be years. Okay, twelve years. <laughs> but really, the really good coffee came when, when your shop came into we'll play, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's complicated. And a lot of what I think consumers fail to realize is unlike wine or liquor or any food product is that they don't hold coffee in such high regard. So they think of it just as easy, easier than expected. And then when they come to classes like a brewing science class or try to make espresso themselves, they don't really understand like why does this taste so bad. So it's about educating the consumer, but also a lot more consumers now because of how coffee and specialty coffee has grown over the past 20 years, really, it's, they're a lot more educated and there are a lot more, there are a lot more questions and they're a lot more curious. So I'm very hopeful. <laughs> I want you to hear, hear from Jeff, but I want to, we will come back to the, the origin of Los Angeles coffee. There was this eight years ago, 12 years ago, so that's controversial and also very interesting, but Jeff, we'll get to it's that. It's not but, controversial. Okay. Jeff, last... I, I'm to, with you. It's to, 12, 12 years. To get to the point... Uh, 2007. Um, one, one thing you wish customers just maybe something anecdotal from being on farms a lot and that being your, your, your life? Well, it's quality. It's quality. Uh, because it's a word that's really easy to say and we, we throw it around and we talk about this connection between the value of coffee, whether it's to, to you as a, as a coffee drinker, what's the value of it to you? Is it tied to the, the taste? Uh, and the value to the farmer who really is the the artist. They're, the, they're the, the primary producer. You know, all of us do a lot of work to, to curate and to um, make sure that we shepherd uh, coffee to its final destination uh, without, without spilling a drop of quality out um, inadvertently by mishandling it. And we, we play our part in the creation of, um, or the, the interpretation and delivery of quality. But the quality of a coffee it's, it's true intrinsic potential is defined by the things that happen on the farm. Yet the farmer tends to be completely invisible, uh, usually behind this, this wall of, um, of artifice mm-hmm. and fashion. And ultimately, I, you know, one of the questions I think you, you have to ask yourself, if, if you, you're thinking about, well, how do, we, how do we make sure that quality is somehow attached to the farmer's work, you know, we first have to come to a, a collective definition of what, what the hell is quality. You know, how do I measure it? What does it look like? What does it taste like? And if you go around the room and ask everybody, what's quality? I imagine we'll get uh, fifteen. Some people answers. might say espresso. We might get fifteen. <laughs> yeah, and some people might say it's French roast, and some yeah. people might say it's it's coffee that tastes like peaches, and some might yeah. say it's sweet coffee. Some might say it's coffee with bitterness yeah. and. There's room for all that. I mean, if you, you're a hip-hop dude, right? You're a New York guy. In, uh, yeah. you know, so you'd say Biggie Smalls. Black Moon. Biggie yeah, like Smalls. Black Black. Quality, not quality. Quality. I mean, quality. quality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nas. The yeah. most yeah. quality. 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 Tribe called Quest. Early, early career Nas only quality, sorry. KRS-One. Wow, I mean, this KRS-One, quality. Okay, so, but quality. It's all quality, but it's very different. KRS-One, Biggie, Tribe, they're different. Um, Sean Puffy Combs. Maybe not quality. Not quality. You know, there's yeah. 
Shout you out to you my can guy, though for naming out a decent amount of hip hop artists. <laughs> no, Jeff, you can. Uh, Jeff is low key. No, He'll go from Alchemist to like. He's got, he's got a catalog. Yeah. No, but so so in in this realm, we can all come to a pretty clear and quick definition of what's quality, what's not. In coffee, it's really fucking hard right now because there's so much noise and misunderstanding about what are from what does quality derive? What are the markers? What are the indicators? How do I know it when I see it? And more importantly, how do I know uh, when it's not quality. Well, and the problem with the markers and the indicators is that the pretenders are getting better at the markers and the indicators without the substance. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it's harder to discern in parts. I want to uh, talk about roasting because I think we, we, we talk about the farmer being important, and of course we all agree, but then you get to roasting, and this is a Kyle and Bronwyn question because you both now, you roast now, and you work for counterculture, which roasts. So the question is, is like really, how important is roasting to this actual chain that we're kind of trying to build right now? I mean, roasting is, uh, it's essential. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to try it the other way. Yeah. <laughs> People have, I'm sure. It's not good. Oh, yeah. That's People thing, have. Right? White, white coffee, did you read about it? White, it like yeah, white zombie roasted. was like a Vietnam thing yeah. where it was like barely roasted and it was like super sour. Well, Anyways, it, I mean... Um, I mean, I don't know if the question is, like, how important is it to roast? Uh, no, that's not, because I think it's more like the actual roasting. How important is that? Stuff? Yeah, I mean, the roaster plays a few... The roaster is not just the roaster. The roaster is the buyer first. And that, you know, it's interesting. When I, I started in coffee in Seattle, uh, along these yeah. people flanking me also did. Um, <laughs> And uh, I was terrified of Bronwyn uh, <laughs> when she came in. Uh, but, uh, and... Yes, I'm very scary. In Seattle, it was very espresso culture. It was very, like, the roaster and the barista. Like, they, they define everything. And then I joined Intelligentsia. And Intelligentsia was like, the roaster's job is to get the fuck out of the way, the quality of the coffee. And to some extent, like, that's true. The roaster does get to author a part of that story. Um, but their primary goal should be to emphasize what's already great in the coffee. And that is... Which is Jeff, what Jeff's talking about. Right, and, and that is hard. It is so hard. Yeah, Talk about the yes. difficulty in roasting, because so a lot of this I, audience might not know what actually goes into roasting. So if you think about the roaster, particularly, so the farmer, the producer, they've grown all of these wonderful coffees, and you as the roaster are like the chef to really highlight this one ingredient, this one product, and give it so much glory. And it can go very wrong so many ways because you're working with this machine that... Usually 50 years old or more. Yeah. Yes. Or, or not. Yeah. And there's a lot of variables. There's air, there's heat, there's... It's science in one big thing. Okay, you, you're, you're thinking about physics, you're thinking about chemistry. You are a chef of yeah. one, one particular thing, and you may never have roasted this particular coffee before, and you use, like, way back when I was roasting, mm -hmm. they didn't have lovely systems to track, mm -hmm. you know, how the, the heat. And yeah. So just like a good chef, you're using part of it as art, your senses, but also you're using a lot of science. And you can really fuck it up pretty easily, you can, too. You can mess it up really Yeah, it's like a souffle. Really right, okay. I want to get to nicely, too, because I want to explain through your statement now, like, what is a multi-roaster cafe versus a uh, Intelli or Go Get em, which is now as a roaster, I mean, you roaster in coffee. I mean, look, I can talk on multi-roaster programs and everything, but I don't. I, I'm a single roaster. Oh, you are single. Guy. Sorry. You okay. Know, I, we started He's monogamous. Out, we oh, start. You know, I, I'm a I'm a dedicate to some philosophies. You know, okay. I've tried my best to you know uh, be a good representation of those. So we started out as a four barrel account, then we work with Cat Cloud now, uh, Cat and Cloud now, and right. they've been fantastic to work with, offering a dynamic range of coffees that we can play with. I mean, I often thought that the challenge of you know multi roaster programs and having to toggle multiple roast you know philosophies and try and make all of those taste delicious was. You know, it's it's arduous alone with just a single origin coffee trying to highlight you know all the best yeah. qualities of that coffee, let alone maybe three different ways it might have been roasted. You know, so uh, so I, I like working with just one roaster. I've got a great relationship. I mean, they listen to 
you know, the styles of profiles we would like to okay. offer in our cafe, they're fantastic. So Bacali used to be multi. Yeah, we were a multi-roaster, and it was great. I mean, we started off, uh, I mean, I think, first of all, there's like two ways to be multi-roaster, and mm-hmm. one is like, like whatever the brand is hot, you just buy some of their coffee, yeah. and you don't taste it. Um, I had actually had the privilege of, of getting a chance to buy some coffee when I worked at Intelligentsia, mm-hmm. and getting... Uh, sort of accustomed to QC protocols where you bring in a lot of different coffees and you taste them blind and and then you you choose the ones that are the highest quality. And so when we started GMB, that was kind of our premise. We wanted to have all the roasters send us their best coffees and we wanted to cherry pick the coffees blind and and select them without knowing how much they costed or anything like that. And so it was like many, many times more work to do that, and I'm not complaining. More it was fun, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it was very worthwhile. And like, we have a database that still exists somewhere of like everybody's best coffee from uh, 2012 through uh, you know 2016 or 2017. Um, so uh, we we hit a point though with the multi roaster thing where we just started to feel like, well, first of all. When a barista takes a coffee, they are in conversation with the roaster because each roast, each coffee, especially when you're working with a bunch of different roasters, they all extract differently. They all have their own sort of nuance and, and like, you know, depending on the machine or the person behind it or the philosophy of the roasters. And I think we realized that our quality was capped by our lack of familiarity with what we were offering. With a single, like a control. Basically. Yeah, yeah, and so we realized that you know if we could sort of level up and and take like the next rung in the supply chain under our own custody, that we would be defining the quality higher up in the more definitive moment, and we were just ready for it. I just want is there somebody brave in the audience who can raise their hand? This is like some complicated shit, right? This is very in the like. Weeds. Can anyone admit that like this is like really complicated? Because thank you in the back. Like coffee is no, it's extremely in the it, weeds. It's in the weeds, but. but this is what coffee, this is the third way, this is what craft coffee is all about, these topics, and this is really what informs the cafe and the roasting. So I just want to say, like, it's, it's cool to have these, these individuals speaking about these topics on the record in front of you. So I, I hope it's not going over anyone's heads. I, I just think it's important. I just want to, to appreciate it, it this opportunity. Is. No, to appreciate this opportunity, though, too, oh. to give us this scope to discuss it in a way. Oh. I mean, thank you. I oh, mean, shut we, up. we understand that, you know, this uh, amount of attention has been given toward, you know, to food for the better part of, you know, 20 years, you know, we've got channels dedicated to it now, you know, so our ability to, you know, focus on it, talk about it, discuss it in the medium that makes most sense for our generations now, I mean, I think it's fantastic, so thank you. And I'd like to... It's, it's, it's cool. I'd like um, to suggest, suggest something as another, another means of, of framing yeah. uh, exactly what we've all been talking about uh, with regard to the roaster and, and the barista and what, what's our role in all of this and from where does quality derive and I was thinking... A, a good analogy that maybe is easy for us all to to sink our teeth into is this idea that if if coffee is a song, um, the artist, the original artist, there's a songwriter who makes it. So you know, uh, yesterday, amazing song, right? It, it makes you emotion, uh, it makes you emotional, makes you want to cry. Uh, you've heard a dozen different singers sing it over the years. Paul McCartney wrote that, and he crafted something that has this defined intrinsic beauty. It's a composition that's gorgeous and it's dripping with intrinsic quality. But then it takes a singer and, uh, and a piano player, another musician, to bring it to life, to give it, to give it expression, to make it visceral and allow you to feel it. Uh, and then it takes, at the end, a sound engineer uh, who's taking what was, was laid down by the musicians and the singer and just tweak the knobs a little bit and make sure the resolution, the clarity comes, uh, comes through brilliantly. And that's when it becomes this work of this masterpiece, right? And in that, that analogy, the barista is the sound engineer. They're taking the, the raw recording and they're, they're just finessing it and they're playing with the levels until it, until it really feels great. And each of them might do it a little differently. Steve Albini might do it differently than, than somebody else, but... They're, they're putting their stamp on it. The, the musicians are interpreting what's there. And, and between the three of them, they produce something that's incredible. But I, I don't think, as we as coffee consumers, oftentimes we, we pay attention to the singer 
we don't pay attention to the songwriter, and that's where um, the industry has a lot of of growth in front of it. Mm-hmm. If we want to, if we want to build a better, more more articulate, um, and a better platform, yeah. really, for quality to to thrive. And that's where this um, coming back to the. I feel a little bad now that I, I dropped a, a big stinky poop in the audience with the the R. Kelly comment. I want to clarify that. I mean, the. The, uh, <laughs> and he came the, back to it too. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, you know, he's a man here, of here's the thing. You, you kind of forgot you about it. that, Jeff. <laughs> we know what you meant, man. Go ahead, deliver. Here, here's what I was going. Here's where I was going with that. Is that, you know, there's uh, this this person produced some things that are are really beautiful in the world that have that have have had an impact, a positive impact in the world, uh, and Espresso has done that. Uh, but this person is also uh, a real horrible human being and, and has created a lot of distress in the world and Espresso has also done that. Wow. And- <laughs> There's truths about Espresso that are behind every door I'm, when you I'm, open the door. I'm grateful to say that's not my impression of it, man. That, that, that is, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I can't sell Espresso that way. This, this is a... Uh, let me... Sorry, I can't do it. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm, Jeff has demonstrated the high and the low yeah. of his metaphorical prowess. No, we're going... This comes from his liberal arts education. I, I'm into it. I um, mean, you definitely did not cook up that whole songwriter thing right now, right? No. Uh, well, it was good. Most, it was good. Most of it, but I'll just I'll just yeah, R. Kelly R. Kelly inspired me. I'll just still Jeff's to his, his second metaphor, the more fortunate one. I'll say that it was like let's put the technical Grammys on during primetime. Yeah. Obviously, no one is doing that. Like the technical Grammys are obviously still at 5 p.m. But maybe it will change one day, and maybe there will be an audience for technical Grammys. I want to pivot to the sunny state of coffee in Los Angeles is the name of this, and we are in L.A. Uh, talking about coffee, and as I said at the top, this is a great city. But let's talk about why this city in particular is very special. Jeff, you don't live here, but you started Intelligentsia here. Um, we'll start with you, and then we'll go down. I just want to hear a little bit about that first moment when you opened Intelli here in Silver Lake and the significance of it. And then I think we'll just move down a little bit because everyone okay. has it. A- I mean, it was it was... Gorgeous and exhilarating and exciting because we'd been we started in 1995 in Chicago, and it wasn't until and we'd been we'd been learning about coffee, building our craft, uh, trying to get better at what we do, trying to understand it, and then trying to convince Chicago consumers to get into uh, into quality and and start to really care about all this nuance in coffee and and it was like banging your head against the wall a lot because um, you know I, I love Chicago, it's my city, uh, but can be very stubborn and pragmatic and and not necessarily all that ready to embrace new things. Meat and potatoes yes. town. I'm from uh, Michigan. And I can so, say that. And so it came out here and, and all of a sudden we opened the store in Sunset Junction and we're doing the same thing we did in Chicago but uh, applying everything we'd learned up until that point. So we were we were breaking a few different um, uh, paradigms, which... Yeah, I want to Kyle to talk well. about that because you were working there, the paradigms that were being broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, L.A. didn't have this thing. And it was interesting for me because I moved down from Seattle and Seattle had this espresso culture. And, it, it, you know, there was like there was a thing about baristas. Every cafe in 2005 in Seattle had to pour latte art. You come down here and it's just like not like it's just not it was not happening. What was here? Uh, so, so the two places. Uh, well, okay. So there, like, there was groundwork, uh, which was notable. Um, Cafe Lux had opened in Santa Monica, and they were like a vivace uh, sort of account. But um, with respect to them, like, they weren't really like that. They weren't like changing people's minds. And Intelligentsia, for what I mean, I think part of it is we landed in Silver Lake. Part of it is like. We gave no fucks, and we just kind of decided, like, we were going to, if there was no template here, if there was no expectation, then there was, like, we could rewrite, we could write the rules. And so I don't think people realize, like, at the time, that coffee shop brewed every cup of drip coffee to order, named the farm on the menu, offered many different coffees from many different farms in 2007, uh, and had 
a single origin espresso and a blend espresso and all you this stuff. Menu. You had yeah. a menu of espressos. A menu of coffees. Never, you could never choose. Seen. You could choose your appellation. You could choose, you know, your flavor profile, and the person behind the bar could tell you about it. And that's why we got mocks like endlessly. But it was also why we had like three hour lines uh, when we opened yeah. uh, to drink the coffee. It was. It was a. It that was the definitive moment in L.A. sort of third wave coffee, and it's interesting because it's only been twelve years. Yeah. Uh, but like, I think you know. I hope that coffee drinkers in this town sort of preserve that sense of history in the same way that Angelinos have been so good at doing that with our other sort of iconic natural things. resources yeah well yeah well like well like whether it's like a restaurant you know that you know we all like okay so like intelligentsia in la was like i don't know it was like shape and east like it was like that it was that level of sea change and and not just in la because there were no rules everything we did was more ambitious yeah. more turned up and it was it was that was the beacon for specialty coffee in the world Really, truly. No, I give them credit for moving me down here. I mean, uh, yeah. What's your just explain your industry? It, yeah, it's all. It's every. You know, anytime ask me, anybody asks me about how I got to Los Angeles, you know, I end up bringing up Kyle's name, um, uh, being the guy to convince Intelligentsia to fork down a decent amount of money to move this barista from Seattle to help you know uh, establish this place in Venice. And I didn't know that I was going to be working at the Silver Lake you know location for like ten months and kind of. You know what they had broken. You know the rules for in in getting here and earned a certain amount of um, uh, reputation, if you will. You know for being a certain kind of way, for giving no fucks. You know. Uh, then I was that dude that I mean you know I came along and all of a sudden like we gave a lot of fucks. We gave, yeah, we gave I mean, lots yeah, of they fucks. Gave too many fucks. Well, that was the you know. <laughs> To the to the degree though where you know like I remember I remember some of my first shifts on bar though you know the clientele. Uh, was a certain like had a certain amount of attitude with me, and being one of those baristas uh, in you know at Espresso Vivace, yeah, I was used to being treated a certain way, and I'll own that. You know that because of the way we loved coffee, we loved espresso, we served it a certain way. You know, like our clientele responded to us a certain way, and I think Silver Lake in Los Angeles was you know or starting to come around to that. So, you know, that, that was the first sort of impression of those styles of people that, man, these people really care about this. And then again, Intelligentsia's commitment to be like, yo, we care about creating this culture in, of professionals, so we're going to find people that care enough about it and we're going to bring them down here. And so, I mean, that you know, I'm not here in Los Angeles if not for Intelligentsia and for Kyle, you know, uh, to be saying, yeah, 10 years later, and, you know, after, you know, it was at the end of 2008 is when I moved down here, you know, that, you know, here I am, you know. That, that shop is the rootstock for L.A. specialty coffee. It's mm-hmm. like Campanile for restaurants. It, it, yeah, uh, Shea is a great example. Brahman, do you have something to add about the early days? Because you were here too. Yeah. Um, not only it was an interesting time in specialty coffee in general, and I think with counterculture, intelligentsia, Stumptown, they all started in nineteen, like in the mid nineties, and that's when they really start. And around two thousand five to two to two thousand seven, that's when the producer as really became highlighted within specialty coffee. And what's amazing about Los Angeles and why, you know, counterculture is here today as well as Intelligentsia and Sumtown and La Colombe and all of these other companies is... Go get them, Tiger. And <laughs> you were already here before then. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about the bigger guys. Uh, you have all of these companies that really started... I am a, I am a big guy. <laughs> you... you that's your opinion. <laughs> I am a very big guy. <laughs> but you're not a tiny jogger not like me. <laughs> True. <laughs> wow. There's like a there's like a measuring stick somewhere. If you could if you could understand there's there, like even you know I could you know sense like a certain amount like there you know people in the industry competed with each other or around each other knowing of each other you know yeah. the familiarity there to joke that way I mean it's, no, it's yeah. it's it's awesome from my perspective too. Love being one of those young baristas no, watching this, if, yeah, the the podcast people who are it's in your ears. It's it's all love. Lots yeah. of smiles here. I want to uh, also. We're going to go back like we do with the espresso question. I have one other question. Let's talk about ready to drink RTD. Those big ass bottles of cold brew that you see everywhere now, everywhere. Nicely, I'm looking at you. Let's start with you. What do you think about this? How is this? How does this affect you? Um. Oh, we don't bottle anything currently. We gave, you know, tried our hand at it, decided to do something else. But I think um, the idea of meeting people where they're at, 
is big to me. You know, when I serve people and understanding, like, if they come to me and they've been used to a caramel frappuccino, well, then I'm going to make them something sweet and delicious to make sure they leave my shop happy, you know? Now, if a big bottle of cold brew is going to do that for me, you know, man, I'm happy to reflect on experiences that I've had where I've been like, yo, that was pretty good, and, you know, I'll speak on it, you know? So, again, if it allows me an opportunity to connect with a customer in a way that's uh, uh, genuine, that... Um, helps them patronize my business, you know? I mean, I'm happy about that. It, I, I see it in the bigger picture in the sense, you know, we're creating more coffee drinkers in a way that uh, uh, when they follow the history back or when they decide to dig a little deeper or go next level, they end up finding places like ours. So it's like a gateway drug to, like, filter, to, like... I, to- dr- I totally call my Spanish latte a gateway <laughs> latte. You know what I mean? Like, I just got to own yeah. it. You know what I'm saying? I like it. You meet them where that is sweet and delicious. You see them every day, mm-hmm. you know? Kyle, what do you think about RTD? I am very concerned that people who buy coffee in a bottle at the grocery store might think that that's what good coffee is. That's the hammer I wanted to drop. I mean, that's what... That's... I actually think it's... I, like, I, I, so RTD is like a real economic driver for this industry, and I like will not discount that. Of course. RTD is also putting more coffee in people's homes and I think that's you bottled too, right? Yeah, I mean we bottled and then sold it the same day. We didn't we didn't but do you the, bottled. You bottled yeah, your coffee. But putting something in a bottle is not the same as My pasteurizing. Point being you made it ready to drink for. Them. Yeah, but we do that anyways. Right yeah. then and there, no, no, they no, no. come I, in. My, 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 my thing is, like, I always, I, I thought you guys were putting, doing it well, so I, a, thought you got, I thought you, if anybody would have taken the next level, it would have been you guys. Right. I mean, it, it cannot be taken to the next level. Uh, there is no, I, I don't like any of it. I think it all tastes bad, with the exception of the La Colombe Draft Latte, which is fucking delicious. Wow, that's controversial it's, statement. It I has feel. nothing to do with the coffee quality. Yeah. It's just, like, engineered. It's like, it's like a Guinness. <sighs> it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, Bravo, La Colombe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the like the black, I mean that that is stale coffee. There is no way to like it is not a shelf is not a shelf stable product. This that's and and like I as a business owner understand every single one of the motivations for people to want to mi- literally bottle this thing and ship it out to people's homes. Coffee freshness is a is a thing. It is one of the things. And 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 that's a, like every stage. And so Amen. I, I, I'm like oh, yeah, yeah. so like yeah. I'm 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 like down for everybody getting their money. Like get paid. Please get paid. Um but I am But who who's getting paid for the uh, La Colombe draft I mean La Colombe should get paid for the draft latte because that <laughs> shit is genius. Uh yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh <laughs> That's, you know, everything that we talked about for the, whatever, the 40 minutes that led up to that question was not that. Exactly. And that's why I wanted to leave the end, Bronwyn, yeah, add a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Yes, it is a great way to get consumers to drink more specialty coffee, but it's not special. Whatever Jeff yeah. has done or other coffee companies, like Counterculture spends so much time really building partnerships with other producers just like Intelligentsia and it just seems to discount everything that they've worked for. And it doesn't taste bad, but it's not that great. And then there's the farmer. Where does the farmer come in and our ready to drink? Have you ever seen a farm name on an Big. RTD bottle? <laughs> Have you ever said it, seen a country on one? I think maybe I once. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there... Well, there's... Oh yeah, yeah. When we when we bottled it, we did uh, state what coffee you know it was you know that we brewed you know yeah. and I mean I, I, so I will say like I've seen some of that on on packaging so I mean that but that helps again it's if if somebody's discerning enough to then read you know what country it came from and care enough about that well then the next time that they're in you know a cafe and they decide to ask you know well what country did this brew I'm about to have come from you know again if it sparks up enough of an organic conversation where we're creating rapport we're, we're creating mm-hmm. an, we're creating an everyday customer. Uh, that's helping coffee mm-hmm. as a whole. So, like, there's probably some people who feel shame for drinking cold brew right now, but Jeff's going to really make you feel like shame right now because we're going to talk about farmers and cold brew. Those two words, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Well, I mean, first of all, let me, let me just say, let me, let me drop a statistic on you. You know, there are uh, 
several uh, tens of million farmers, coffee farmers in the world, and over 90% of them uh, barely are meeting their, their basic needs. Uh, coffee is a $600 billion industry, $600 billion, and of that $600 billion, uh, less than 8%, 8 to 10% makes it back to the producing country. You know, and in the context of what I said earlier about the, the song, you know, the song analogy, there's the songwriter, there's the singer, and there's the sound engineer. Uh, you know, music has a, a sordid history. If you think about the Motown era and, and how that went, where a lot of extremely talented artists and creators uh, never benefited from the work that made a shitload of money for other people. Uh, in, the con in the coffee context... You know, I, I believe that the, the pathway to making coffee farming a lucrative career for a farmer is creating a consumer base that believes in quality, that, that wants quality, is willing to pay for quality. Uh, people are willing to pay for drinks. That's no, I mean, that's been proven. There's plenty of people here who will pay $9 for, for opening a can of beer. Yeah, or a beer. Um, easy. You know, but... How do you connect that to the work of a farmer? And one of my, one of my great um, sources of, of uh, frustration with mediums like cold brew and RTDs is that they mask. It's a medium that does not allow the work of the farmer to really be uh, displayed with any, with any resolution or The brew or method and the preservation method both are the of, two both dominant of them, flavors. Yeah, those are the dominant flavors. So what you're tasting really is about as disconnected from the farm as it possibly could be. And also the only way it stays on a shelf is if it's concentrated. And so all those things are concentrates. They're energy drinks. They're, right? en they're energy drinks, yeah. exactly. And so, yeah. you know, and, and it... The drug element of coffee, which we, you know, it is a drug. I mean, if we could... I'm down for the drug yeah, element. Yeah, I mean, and, and accept <laughs> that I think, you know, a lot of those people that Everybody are treating knows. it like a drug and trying to get through their day. I mean, your UPS delivery driver, your teacher, your doctor... Me whatever. in the morning, you in the know, morning, anybody, you in the morning, anybody, you in the morning. Anybody that does, you know, you know, treat it more medicinally than culinarily or whatever, you know, I mean, I get that, you know. I mean, again, meeting them where they're at, you know, to... End up seeing them in my cafe. That's my that's my goal is to try and pull them in that way. Well, and the thing that's that's so beautiful about coffee, that I think all of us were, were drawn to. I mean, obviously, there's there's community. There's the things that coffee does to bring people together. Uh, there's a lot of things that that really are, are gorgeous about the coffee. Coffee as a medium for social interaction, for engagement, for cultural exchange. Uh, but then since there's the also the beginning just, of the coffee shop. Since the beginning of the coffee shop. But there's also that's this its this visceral love for coffee as a culinary uh, as a culinary creation as something that's so rich in detail and flavor flavor expression and range uh, I mean some of you were here drinking these Ethiopian and, and Colombian coffees and Kenyan coffees and the, the dynamic range of sensory quality and flavor in coffee is enormous and it's this wonderland that we can play in it's a, it's a miracle of nature that we can all celebrate and the there is a very strong correlation or connection between the degree to which a farmer uh, works as an artisan, not a harvester, works as a craftsperson who's making something meant to be boutique and special, and the way a roasting company behaves and orients all of their systems and resources to maximizing and optimizing that, and the way a coffee shop hires people, uh, brings them across the country uh, to work simply to... Uh, to allow that expression to be there. And that's where the real beauty is in coffee, and that's where the value is in coffee, and that's the difference between commodity coffee and specialty coffee. And let me coffee. just jump in. I want to... That's th There's parallels, obviously, between this and cocktails and this and beer. And what is the price for cocktails? What I draw is, that parallel constantly. And I want to ask... our place after, a, you know, an original bootlegger of Los Angeles, you know. So for us, drawing that parallel helps us create those regular yeah. customers I, every day. I want to close, and then we'll get to the questions. And I didn't prep you on this, but I want to know. We'll start, start with you nicely. How much should a cup of coffee be? Should, 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 a, cup, should be, a cup of coffee How much should we pay be? for a cup of coffee? I, I would love if, you know... The same way I could get a canned beer or a bottled, uh, you know, beer or something like that, you know, eight nine dollars at a bar. If it was eight nine dollars at my cafe, yeah. that would be fantastic. Pal, I mean, I think there should be a huge delta between 
the low end and the high end of third wave specialty coffee, and it should probably start at 10. And baseline 10 escalating to 22. I mean, or beyond. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like the, the same way. I mean, people are and laughing it, it, the like, audience, and that's legit. Like, 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 by the way, like, I'm contemplating a world where, like, my entire business model, like, doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, like, yeah, this yeah. question is scary. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's the work. Yeah. That's what it, it deserves. It, 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 yeah, I agree. It's like, should be 10 till however much you, like, for rare. For rare coffees, it should be. Just we like still have a tipping wine. culture, so eight yeah. to nine dollars allows for a dollar to two dollar yeah. tip. <laughs> and your tip, for, you know, what I'm saying, let's take care of your baristas, all right? You know? But ten dollars sounds nice too. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I still tip on a ten dollar glass of wine. God bless you. Not oh, everybody man. feels that way. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So. And you, you, you. In the story that I wrote, you, I closed with this anecdote. You were in Silver Lake and you were talking coffee with a bunch of dudes, and they were complaining about the price, and they were drinking shit beer for nine dollars a can. I mean, that happens, yeah, that, that happens all, all the time. All the it's time. so <laughs> aggravating. I mean, you, you see it every day. People will go in the or airport. Or buying a bottle of water for $5. Yeah. There you go. A little yeah. tiny bottle of water yeah. Yeah. for $5. Why is this coffee for? it has origin there, guys. It comes from Fiji. Oh, no, shade. Sorry. But I, I think you need, you know, like anything else, uh, you get what you pay for. If you want something that's crafted, that's beautiful, that's done, that's made with a lot of intention, that has a... Um, it was packed with an abundance of natural beauty and sensory delight. You pay for that. And if you want something that just gives you some caffeine in the morning, that's a different price. Uh, and I think what we need is, is an industry where the differences are a little more clear so consumers can make that choice for themselves. Go to a coffee shop. Thank you, panel. We are out of time. You guys have all been amazing. Thank you. Serious honor for me to talk to you guys. I mean it. Thank you. I mean it. This was a. I truly love every person up here. So it's this great. has been a, like a dream come it's true. It's really so. great. Thank wow. you, panel. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>